All right. Well, welcome to Into the Hobbyverse. Uh, this is a Waxy Sandwich, and I'm joined by Moriartis. Hey. Uh, this is you know the podcast dedicated to the hobby around Marvel Crisis Protocol and helping you to improve. Uh, so with uh, that excellent intro out of the way, how are you doing, Moriartis? Too bad, man. How are you? Uh, doing good. Sentinels just released. I bought my I bought my kits. We got Red Skull, importantly, coming out. So it's uh, exciting. I, I've been seeing on the, um, the Marvel, like the AMG Marvel Facebook group, everyone showing off their cool poses for the Sentinels. Oh, yeah. I think my favorite was I saw somebody do the, it was either the Prime or maybe it was one of the regular ones. I don't remember, but they had him dabbing. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I I believe I saw something like that, but that yeah, that was yeah. pretty good. I I appreciate any of them that aren't the uh, the default uh, box art. The one with two hands extended just looks to me like a toddler waddling after a ball. <laughs> I think zombie every time I see. Um, it. <laughs> yeah, zombie's good. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I, I I love seeing them. It's given me some thoughts on on how I want to do mine. Mine are of course still sitting in the box and probably will be for for two months sitting right next to Malekith, but uh, excited that they're out They're They're really cool kids. I, I actually really like the amount of um, extra stuff that it came with. I think there's, you know, for the prime, you get like an extra head and chest piece. I think you can scrap up a couple of extra legs so you can get some really cool basing, you know, ideas for X-Men out of them or basing material, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that uh, each of them, it at the very least comes with, extra sets of arms and so one of the things i want to do is i like the idea of kind of customizing and magnetizing so that you can like swap out their arms with damaged arms for when they get injured i think that's kind of cool so i'm i'm hoping to do something like that yeah i've been doing the same thing putting my sentinels together uh, that that that's interesting looking uh (laughs) it helps because like i think on the table it'd be hard to tell them apart i i don't know my my plan is to say the one with the tire on the base and the one without the tire on the base. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, that's a good point. I, it's kind of funny. I had to do that with Star Wars Legion. I had a bunch of stormtroopers, and it's like, how do I distinguish between one squad and the other, especially when you have like you know four to six of them or whatever. And so and I ended up re- having uh... to put little tiny dots of color in certain spots and then calling them by the name of that color. It's like, oh, yeah. this is a blue squad, and they have like a tiny dot of blue somewhere on their helmet or whatever. Um, so yeah, I might, I didn't even think about that. I'm going to have to do something like that with my Sentinels to make sure I can tell them apart. That's a good point. Very important. Uh, uh, well, let's, uh, let's catch up. It's been a while since we've talked about it. So I have, I have quite a few things to talk about, but, uh, as far as hobby catch up. So I'll let you go first. So what did, what did you paint since the last time we recorded? Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's been busy for me in real life, so I haven't had nearly as much time to hobby as I as I prefer to, which of course is uh, all the time. Uh, so I, I think last time I was still working on the Howling Commandos and Nick Fury. Um, those are now done. Uh, I also finished up. I think it was Arnim Zola. I don't think I had painted him last time. I uh, finished him up. A uh, little sad with that one because uh, Sarastro did a teaser of him right after I was done painting him. And I really wanted to do like what he did with the, uh, the face uh, where it's like lit from underneath looks so cool. And I wish I'd have been able to do that with mine. Uh, But you know, 
the rest of him, he still looks good. I'm still happy with him, so I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Uh, but then I decided to, uh, I have a second core set that I got forever ago um, because uh, my core models are a lot of my painful learning experiences, and they just don't look nearly as good as a lot of my more recent stuff. And so uh, I had yet to do my Captain America repaint. I had done my Red Skull repaint, but not my Captain America. And so I decided, since we're going to be talking about Captain America and Red Skull today, that it would be a great opportunity to dig in and redo my Captain America and you know get myself thinking about his model and what you can do with it and things like that. So that's about all I've gotten done is Cap, Arnim Zola, and Howling Commandos and Nick Fury. So how many from the, the course that have you actually repainted? Or how many are you um, missing at this point? Yeah, I, missing is a quicker list. I, I still haven't done, uh, I think on the good guys side, I, I still haven't done Captain Marvel. I think she's the only one left. And I think on the bad guys side, I still need to do Baron Zemo and Ultron. Uh, and the rest of them, I, I think I've all gotten the repaints done. That's if true. memory serves. So, yeah, not, not too many. Um, I, I'm tempted to consider uh, doing a repaint, but um, <laughs> I need to finish up my actual stand, the actual uh, backlog before I get there. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I originally I was planning on not doing any repaints until uh, I had, you know, 100%ed my backlog. But I realized that sometimes it's nice to just kind of change things up. Like sometimes you have to kind of let your your inspiration take you where it's going to take you and not go with what you were planning on doing because it kind of keeps you, I don't know, energized. It keeps you from getting burnt out. Uh, and that's the reason why I, I will occasionally sprinkle in uh, a repaint or something like that is because it, it just prevents me from, you know, especially if I only have like a couple models on my backlog and neither of them are particularly enticing at the moment. It's good to be like, you know what? I kind of want to, just do an X-Force version of Wolverine. I'm just going to paint him. Uh, yeah, yeah, chase, chase your bliss, you know. Uh, go after your views. It keeps you a lot more engaged. I, I think that's good advice for anyone. Um, you know, when one of the things that, uh, you know, as, as a longtime painter, you, you naturally will take long periods of breaks uh, in the painting. And a lot of the reasons that, that I would get, you know, sent down those, Obby avoidance rabbit holes are, oh, I have to paint another unit of Tau, or oh, I got to finish these, um, you know, the the rebels from from Star Wars Legion. And you're just not excited about painting it. So, you know, even though it won't maybe get you closer to your game, I I, I think that painting something that's interesting to you right now can really keep you engaged with the hobby. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's what happened to me. I'd say my worst case of that was when I was trying to build up to paint Thanos. I was trying to knock out all the Black Order guys first, and uh, I had to paint Black Dwarf. It's such a it's a big model. There's a lot to do on him, and I had no passion for the character. So I I, I you know I got I think his skin done, and I I didn't even know how I wanted to go about tackling the other bits on him. And I it, you know it I burned out and I stopped painting for probably a good I don't know two months or so until I was finally like you know what, let me just paint some other stuff so that I'm at least getting something done. And I started just painting some models I was excited about. And it kind of breathed new life in me. And next thing you know, I'm knocking out the Black Order guys, and, and then I'm getting to Thanos, what I'm actually excited about. And 
it, it, it ended up being a positive experience, but it was only because I intentionally deviated from what I had planned out. Uh, so I, I think it's vital uh, to, to keep that in mind when you're painting, because otherwise you'll, you know, I, I think that keeps people back more than they realize. Yeah, no doubt. I, I will have to forgive you for that slander. Black Dwarf is my boy. I love that guy. So um, <laughs> I'll have to, I'll have to, you know, edit that part out. That, that's fair uh, enough. I can't speak ill <laughs> of him. Fair enough. Ah, uh, well. So what have I been working on? I have been. Let's see, I, I can't remember where I was in my winter guard, but now I have finished my winter guard. I'm, I'm very happy with how three of them came out. Uh, those three being Ursa Major. Um, Red Guardian and then Crimson Dynamo. I, I spent a lot of time on them trying different, you know, techniques. Um, I did a I did a freehand, uh, you know, NMM effect on the star that I'm I'm really happy. Or the star on uh, Red Guardian Shield. I'm really yeah, happy. Yeah, that, came out that one looks really good. Yeah. Uh, and I did a, you know, I've done it in the past, but I I, I really tried to do more like free-handed weathering on Crimson Dynamo, so that came out really well. And and I'm pretty I'm pretty happy with them. I'm 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 contemplating because it's kind of a nice squad, a, a nice little squad, and I'm contemplating just kind of putting them into the worthy competition as just like a you know just a checkbox entry. Like I, I don't necessarily think that they're winning entries, but I, you know I I like the way they look. I, I got a cool um I went to the National Scale Model Society, the National Capital Scale Model Society, which is a, um, you know, a DC-based, uh, like, historical miniatures show. So they had their annual show uh, two weeks ago, and I, I got a nice diorama kit from them I might, like, kind of use as a display base. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty happy with them, except for Darkstar. Um, I, I don't care for that model too much um and, and maybe that's something we can talk about when we when we get to those models but um yeah i i kind of phoned it in on them and it you know makes me a little bit apprehensive about calling it a, a competition worthy unit but I, i'm pretty happy with how they came out so so i, I finished my winter guard um i painted two-thirds of my howling commandos uh i'm going for a like bubblegum comic book look. Uh, I I did some Google image searching for inspiration and like everything that came up was like this very bright green that like you'd expect from like those bubblegum like comics that you would get. Mm -hmm. Uh so I you know that's the look I'm going for on my Howling Commandos. Um happy with how they're going. I, I need to actually paint uh the main guy, uh David Hasselhoff here. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were struggling to come up with his name. I was like, it's I, was trying, uh, I was trying to come up with, yeah, David, my, my, my dear friend, David. Um, you don't and mess then I painted with a, off. And then I painted a Blood Bowl team. Um, <laughs> I have some people locally who are semi-interested in playing Blood Bowl. And so my semi-interested is uh, they wanted me to paint all of the Blood Bowl teams and buy them. <laughs> so now I have five Blood Bowl teams painted, and I have one more to go before we actually start painting. So I finished a Blood Bowl team. It was a horrible painting experience. I've actually been working on them for like two or so months, uh, but you know, just the existential dread that comes with painting GW stuff for me is 
really sunk in. So I sat down one Sunday. I was like, okay, I'm just going to finish these. So uh, they're they're finished. They're they're fine. They're definitely tabletop level models, but that's the last thing I painted there. Gotcha. Uh, so you know that that kind of catches us up and and a, a timely topic here for our you know our our main topic. Um, this is the first time we're cr- trying to do this. You know, our last episode was a uh, kind of our origin story, but. Now we're, you know, kind of getting into the the standard format of our podcast where we want to talk about, um, you know, the the Marvel Crisis Protocol catalog has a lot of really interesting characters that can lend well to discussions about technique, about color recipes, about alternative color schemes, and just, you know, talking about the models themselves. So, you know, we're, we're starting with our way through the core box here in our first couple of episodes and uh amongst those core box episodes we are starting with captain america and red skull yes indeed so uh let's start with captain america um i had a fun idea driving home from work the other day and uh i think that we're going to give it's it's going to be a mix of us talking about the models um you know our experiences painting them and then we're going to try to distill down some piece of advice into into three categories. So those three categories are going to be builders, which are kind of quick hit pieces of advice like, hey, if you do this, you know, it'll look a little bit better, maybe something to try on your own. But that'll be kind of a builder. It'll be a spender where it'll maybe be more of a uh, medium. Uh, yeah, like like a medium deep dive, like, like not a full deep dive, but something to... Uh, kind of go into and and have a little bit more discussion that kind of a you know hey try this maybe maybe a medium form discussion and then a superpower uh for a deep dive on something about the model that we want to talk about so we'll, we'll kind of bring those up as we go but uh those are kind of the three types of advice we're we're gonna go through as we talk about the models so I'll pass it over to you, uh, Moriartis. Do you want to start with Captain America? How how did you paint yours? Uh, what color inspiration did you take on those? And uh, why did you paint two? Sure. Uh, so originally when I was painting Cap, as I, as I think I briefly mentioned in the last episode when we were doing origin story stuff, Cap, to me, has kind of become an iconic model for my entire journey as a painter because uh originally i was trying to do assembly line style like oh i just want these painted so i can play games with them because i've i in the past have been more of a gamer than a painter and i was trying to do assembly line and so i just oh this needs to be blue oh this needs to be red and i'm not thinking of it any deeper than that i'm not thinking about well what type of fabric is it or what hues of blue or whatever i that's just not how my brain works especially back then and so i was putting down the blues and the reds on like captain america captain marvel spider-man and when i got to the shield that's when i didn't really know what to do because you know back then i was doing you know base coat wash and a highlight and you're done and that's how I painted everything. I have entire armies that are painted based on that. So, I, But you can't really do that with the shield so much. And so that's when I found uh, Sarastro's video guide. And he does this... It, I didn't realize it at the time, but he does like a non-metallic metal effect on, on the shield. And 
it, my experimenting with that is kind of what caused me to go where I did with this whole project and with getting better as a painter and all that stuff. But at the time, my thought process was just, oh, this needs to be blue. Oh, this needs to be red. And so I just did what I could with them. Uh, and the one thing I did that did kind of happen to me was this kind of idea of contrast. And when I say contrast, I don't mean the GW paints. I mean going really bright and really dark. Uh, and so it gives you a very striking look uh, when you take a color like blue and you go dark in the crevices with it and then you go really bright with it. It pops and it gives you kind of a comic book lick, a comic book look. And I kind of stumbled across that and tried doing that with like all of the models. And interestingly with Cap, it, like it works well just on any Marvel Crisis Protocol mini, I think. And especially with my kind of pseudo non-metallic metal experiment I did on a shield, I really like how it came out. Uh, but it, it, this time around, when I went to do my repaint, I was thinking about, uh, you know, what what is a different way I could approach it? And one of the things that occurred to me is that I think I recognized when I originally painted him that his his outfit has like a more tactical feel to it. it it's it's more kind of MCU style costume and like comic book uh, it kind of like the shield cap he's in like his traditional one where he's got like the little scale bumps uh and that one's very comic booky right whheras the the one that comes in the corset has much more of it looks like an outfit somebody might actually wear or captain america something that existed in the real world and so i intentionally approached it differently with my repaint where i wanted to try to give him a more grounded more MCU, more realistic look. And because of that, I, I intentionally chose colors differently. I tried to go more muted. I used more uh, whites mixed in as opposed to oranges and yellows for the reds, for instance. Uh, and what it made me think about was that as a character, I mean, he does have a very kind of canon outfit, right? But there's also just different ways you can approach the kind of how the feel you want him to have. Do you want him to feel very comic booky? Do you want him to feel more MCU representation? Uh, and, and then, of course, I, I've seen a lot of people do uh, just very different color schemes. Like uh, somebody had modified his shield to where instead of like the star and stripes, got uh, it's it's flat. It's essentially smooth. Then it has a maple leaf on it, and they paint it up to be like Captain Canada, or I, I would assume anyway. I'm not familiar with if there is a Captain Captain Canada, but that's what it looked like. It was like Captain America if he were Canadian kind of thing. Uh, and then I've seen Hydra versions of him where he's in like some version of like green and gold or green and yellow. Uh, so there, there's a lot of different ways you could take the character, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you have those two main ones and then the alternate color schemes. Um, yeah, so, so I, I guess I'm looking at mine here. So so I'm, uh, uh, and listeners, there'll be pictures in the show notes to to try to follow along if you want, but we'll, we'll try to give a, a visual description. So my, my Captain America that I painted, um, I painted it towards the end of, of going through the box set. So I had a little bit more repetition or um, 
I guess reps under my belt of of trying to, you know, paint it. it I think it looks pretty good. I I went for somewhere in between your first model, which is is very saturated, and and very high color, versus like an MCU mm-hmm. look. Uh, I I think that mine's a little bit more muted. You know, sitting here today, I don't know if that was intentional. <laughs> Maybe it was at the time, but uh, yeah, you know, I I like how it looks. Um. It's definitely an earlier paint job. I could definitely tighten up some of these lines, but I'm pretty happy with how it looks. I, I also did, you know, a non-metallic metal effect on the shield. Um, I'm not sure it looks good these days, but I, I liked how it looked at the time. So I, you know, I, I liked painting Captain America. I, I thought it was a fun model to paint. I I went with the standard blue and red and white, um, but more of a, you know, muted but not fully muted. Sure. Um, yeah, the, the the Hydra caps are really cool. I, I recently read the, I, I think it's Secrets. Oh boy, I want to get roasted for this, but the one where <laughs> uh, Captain America is like uh, taken agent. over by the Hydra agent. Yeah, and that you know, takes over the USA. I, I thought that that was a really cool comic series and, and it does really make me want to do one. Um, I'm suspicious. Um, so with, with the uh, cards that came out, with the new Red Skull set, um, one of the hints that they gave, if, if you look at who's in the art on those cards, um, th- that gives you a pretty good hint on who they're coming out with in the near future. Mm-hmm. So they, they have Hydra Cap on there. I'm, I'm curious if they will actually do a dedicated Hydra Cap model. But either I mean, way, I, I think it's a cool way to take your Captain America. Yeah, yeah, that, that would definitely be interesting. Yeah, I can see what you mean about looking at your model, how it, it is kind of a mix between the two different versions I did, where I've got the, the high saturation comic booky one, and then yours is definitely not as highly saturated. It's a little bit more muted, but not nearly to the level of my repaint, where that is like super, uh, you know, super toned down. Um, yeah. And I, and... Oh, God. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I also really like the. Uh, non-metallic metal on the shield which we'll get into when we start getting into non-metallic metal but um i feel like one of the things i i talk about a bit on my blog is how i kind of struggle with the non-metallic metal white it uh when i do the toned down version it comes across more like steel where it doesn't really have a, a white to it um and I feel like you kind of found a good in-between there where it still gives like a non-metallic metal vibe, but it, do- it does look white. So I appreciate yeah, that I, about yours. I, I think that is the best part of it, is the white there. I, you know, If I had to pick one of the three rings on there, I think the white came out the best. Yeah, white, white's pretty hard to do, but we'll, we'll, we'll get into that um, a little bit. So uh, g- going through our first builder, we're going to talk about uh, Captain America a little bit. And I want to talk about like, quick ways to paint the color red um, and, and, and maybe some good paints to consider. So one, I, I think the basic way to paint red is to just slap on a, a very deep red, um, put in a, a more medium tone red, and then you know mix in a little bit of orange. I, I think that that works you know, really well. And, it, and that's what I did on my Captain America. Um, and, and that's a pretty good recipe. Um, it gives you a very nice, you know, saturated red, like like you had in your comic book look. And when I say saturated, what I mean is um, the vibrancy of the color. Uh, if you if you think of a oh, let's see, if you think of like a children's movie 
with very bright colors. The colors all have very bright impact. Maybe Coco from Disney is a good example. Like all the colors you see in that movie are are very saturated versus desaturated would be kind of like an artistic film where everything's gray, everything kind of has that color influence to it, uh, but is is less vibrant and less punchy. Um, I could I could try to put some examples in the show notes what I'm talking about, but but a, a really good way to get you know saturated red is to mix in orange. Uh, the reason it reads as saturated is because uh, when if if you look at red outside in like a sunny day, the yellow from the sunlight is going to influence that red more to orange, and you know the human brain will read that as you know a very red object. That you got to be a little careful with that, and, and this is kind of where the superpower comes in. Is if you if you do an orange, uh, red is a color that very quickly starts to look like orange. So in order to combat that a little bit, if you put your orange highlight on the red, and then you you do a glaze, and I'll circle back on that, but you do a glaze of your midtone, meaning that second red that you used over that orange that you just painted. You still get the increased value from the red or from the orange, but now it looks a lot more like red because you've applied a filter back over to that red, and now it's a very saturated red. When I, usually when I paint red, I'll, I'll do this two to three times to get a very vibrant red look, if that's what I'm going for, and, and, and that's a pretty good technique. Uh, yeah. If you don't know what a glaze is... Um, there's a couple ways you can do it. Uh, it's effectively a, a very, very thin paint. Like it's, it's very translucent. So it doesn't cover completely what is put on. It just shifts the color in a direction. Um, so the way to do that with paint is, you know, you can thin it down with water. Um, you get a lot of it off your brush. I, I usually use the back of my thumb to try to figure out how much paint is left on my brush. So you get most of it off of your brush, and then you just drag your brush over the area that you want to glaze over. Um, water works really well. I, I really um, use Vallejo glaze medium a lot of the time to try to do that. Uh, I know that there's some other mediums out there, but Vallejo glaze medium is a really good one. I, I guess Lamia medium from GW is a is also a really good glazing agent. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a quick thing. A, a long way to give you a quick thing to try with red is to you know, highlight up the orange and then glaze back over it with red. Yeah, I want to I wanna second on that, is that uh, everything you just said about how did you read that way is, I can't over, like, I don't think it's possible to overemphasize how powerful that is in making red look good. I That's something I wish I had learned a long, long time ago. And you can do it with either orange or you could even do it with white, but you're going to get a more, uh, a more muted version of it. You can still punch it up with highlights using like by either mixing in oranges and yellows to that's when you'll get the very saturated version of red and then you can glaze it back down with red and it'll still look red part, part of the problem with red is that as you go up with either like oranges and yellows you're going to start changing it to where it doesn't look red anymore it actually looks like you're painting orange or yellow uh, and then if you're doing whites it's going to start to look pink and this is a problem I ran into with past paint jobs where I was like, this looks awful. It looks like I'm painting pink, not red, or or orange, not uh, not red. And at the time, I didn't know about this idea that uh, red, and, and th I find that this is more true of red than it is of other colors for some reason, that with red, going back through and doing the glaze, 
uh, it works really well to maintain the color red while still allowing you to get the benefit of the highlights you're putting down. Uh, it, it's it's tremendously ever since I learned how to do that, my reds are much much better now. Like my, um, I intentionally did this when I was doing the shield for. Uh, my shield version of Captain America, so the the more kind of comic booky looking character that uh, is a, a shield affiliated. When I was painting him, I intentionally tried to use a lot of glazes when I was working on his reds because I wanted to keep that. Uh, I, I wanted to make it look very vibrant and very saturated, but I also wanted it to still look red, and so using the glaze like that to kind of bring it up, bring it up, and then you glaze it down, and you get back to, like, a nice red color, and then you play a little bit more with the highlights, and then you do another glaze. Doing that can give you some really, really impressive red results. So I, I think the advice you just gave is is spot on. That's a, well, that's a great bit of advice. For yeah, and, and, and I want to compliment something that you said. And, and one thing that um, I want to emphasize about the painting process is, is, is you kind of said there where... You go up, then you go down, then you push it, and then you pull it back. Um, one, one of my things about the hobby, and one of the things I want to emphasize is painting Painting is not a linear process. You don't, you know, Games Workshop, a lot of hobby sure. YouTube tutorials will tell you. You start with color A, your base tone, you add color B, and then you add color C, and then you're done. What, when in actuality, um, th there's two things going on. One, GW is trying to simplify that for for accessibility which which is totally fine but as you try to grow and evolve as a painter you know thinking of it very linearly where i need to do step a then step b then step c can kind of be detrimental where you know i guess i guess the other builder here is you know don't don't think of it so linearly like you're not gonna um unless you're a four-year-old with you know half the paint pot on your your paintbrush there's nothing you can do to these models that's going to ruin it. I, I, people get really scared about, you know, I don't want to put too much paint on the model. I want to cover all the detail. I, I think that that is something that um, is is very difficult to do. And you know what? If, if you if you do fall into that trap, you're you're still learning. It's it's not sure. even a big deal. You can just very easily strip the model. Um, don't think of painting as as being so linear. Like you push your highlights out, you pull them back in a little bit by glazing the red. And you you push and pull a little bit till till you get to a spot you're happy with. Um, a lot of that is what I would describe as as futzing with the models. Like maybe mm. that, you know, yeah. base tone first highlight, second highlight is, is the um, you know, you got into the futzing phase. But then what what more artists has described where you're going out, you're pulling it back in, and you're you know going back and forth. That that's the real part where you learn as a painter and where you grow as a painter working through that futzing phase. I, I, I think um it was recently on the uh the Trapped Under Plastic podcast and I don't think they emphasized the point enough, but he said, you know, it, if you only have an hour to paint and you want to improve as a painter, you should spend fifteen minutes of that hour blocking in your colors and then the other forty five minutes in that futzing phase where you push and pull. It, it really helps teach you a lot. And like frankly I'm I'm looking again at my risk called my Captain America. I did it very much like, uh, maybe so more so on my my red school. It was very much like an A plus B plus C step. I didn't do any futzing, and you know, I didn't learn anything painting this model, and and I think that's a big reason why. Um, so you know that maybe that's uh, 
a bit long for a builder, but I, I think it's a really important thing that you kind of hit on there. I just wanted to emphasize. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think I, I to just stress that, uh, I think that's not only where you learn the most, but it's also where you get the results you're the happiest with. And I go back and I look at models where I put something down and I realized it wasn't quite where I wanted it, so I played with it a little bit. And I even going so far as to, you know, essentially rebase coding certain parts of it uh, and then kind of starting over again, especially when you learn to thin your coats, your paints down properly, you can do that more often and it is less of an issue on your model. The models where I did that, where I would kind of go back and kind of rethink or play around with an area, are the ones that I end up being the happiest with. And they also, like you said, it ends up being where you learn the most. I, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's an excellent point. That's, that's absolutely something that makes you better as a painter and gives you better results. I, I think we would be, uh, we would be failing at our goal if we didn't if we didn't mention that and stress it. I think that's yeah. important. Yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, I just want to wrap up the conversation on red here and, and tie it to red skull a little bit. Um, so, so tying it to his skin tone, I, I just wanted to give maybe another little sub sub uh, point here is I, I would actually recommend people if if you're painting the red skull base tone and um, you're 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 wanting to paint his skin red, I would mix in a little bit of purple to your base red. Um, non-human flesh is something that we'll, we'll talk about later, but the I typically start with a very purple, coal-type base tone, and I did this on my Red Skull. It, it, it gives you a lot more interesting and lively look than if you just start with a flat red. Um, you know, skin tones are, are, are very difficult, specifically human skin tones, and the reason for that is there's so much nuance in you know, what is happening under the skin. Skin by itself is a very translucent thing, meaning it shows a lot of what's happening underneath. So, you know, if, if you look at your hand, you can see green, you can see red, maybe you can see a little bit of blue from your veins. So to translate that to miniatures, in particular, when you're look, talking about non, you know, non-human skin tones, um, I, I usually try to mix in a little bit of black to give that idea of, oh, sorry, not black, Mix in a little bit of purple instead of black to give that, uh, you know, more interesting like shadow color before you go up to your red. But but on him, honestly, I I think that the comic book like doing the same thing with Captain America, where you know you go up to orange and then you glaze over with red. I think that that works pretty well for you know, painting red on red skull. Yeah, for sure. I, that was my experience too. The first time I painted red skull, uh, he just got a very basic, you know. Uh, highlighted kind of up to orange and, and it looked all right like it's it's not bad for kind of procedural quick and dirty but the second time i realized i i really wanted to make it look better and at that time i was still trying to avoid everything looking like pink and i hadn't really considered uh i, I didn't really have this understanding of using the glazes to bring it back down and so i'm kind of lucky with my repaint that i didn't uh didn't kind of botch that uh, because I hadn't really learned that lesson yet. But where I had to do it again, I think, uh, starting with a, a purple, uh, definitely for the recesses, I think helps a lot. And then using the glazes to make it to where you can still have like a really vibrant red with a lot of good highlights, but still have it look red and not turn into like pink or orange. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's vital into making 
you know, his skull red, right? That's that's not a model you want to mess up on and have uh, uh, have him be pink skull or orange skull, right? That's that's one where you want him to be orange or red skull, red skull. Yeah, and and uh, it's it's just difficult to you don't want it to be a flat red either. Like that's kind of the difficulty right. with with red a lot of the time is. You know, if you try to push it too bright without doing that glazing step, or or you know, being very careful with the amount of highlight that you have, it you know is is a little bit on the difficult side to do. But here, here Hydra, we're supposed to be talking about Steve. Hydra's already trying to take over Steve's segment here, so <laughs> uh, I want to I want to return to Steve and then maybe transition to you know the 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 spender for Steve, which which is talking about blue. Obviously, when you look at Steve, you know you have the three main colors: red, we touched on; white, uh, which we will talk about on a later podcast, and then blue. Um, I want to talk about a couple of different ways to paint blue, and and um, one that will be that very saturated look, like maybe closer to X Men style blue. Uh, one will be a more neutral blue, where you know that's kind of how I envision Captain America, kind of that that true blue look. And the one, you know, if you're if you want to to talk about that more desaturated MCU Captain America type look that that you did, sure. So I'll start right in the middle there uh, with the the neutral blue. Um, so blue is a interesting color. There's a lot of variation that you can get with it. Um, and one of the things, like if you think about blue, a lot of things read as blue. Uh, there's a wide range of the spectrum that you know your eye will look at and will tell you that that's blue. You can mix a lot of green into blue and you'll get a cyan. You can mix a lot of purple into the blue and you'll get like a blue violet. Um, you can mix a decent amount of you know uh, yellow into the blue and and you'll get like maybe a more um, I guess that's closer to cyan again. But depending on how much you mix, it, it'll give you a different tone. But but there's a lot of there's a wide angle of places that you could take blue in particular that is pretty interesting. So so on a true blue and and I think that this is where you know maybe I I always think about painting as you have your standard recipe that's a core and then you switch out little pieces of it. So, so I always think of the true blue as that standard recipe. So if you can find a a pretty good neutral blue, I think that that is a solid place to start to to low light that. Um, I I typically uh, suggest using Payne's Gray ink uh, from Dollar Rowney or really wherever. P- Payne's Gray must be like my second favorite color. That this is this is a really incredible ink. Have you ever used Payne's Gray ink? No, I I need to pick up the Dollar Rowney stuff. I keep seeing it referenced everywhere, and I have yet to pick any of it up. But uh, I, I hear nothing but wonderful things about it. Yeah, yeah. Th- this might be the only useful thing I say in this whole thing, but man, P- Payne's gray is, is a really, really great color to to use, like mix into your shadows. So I I, I never start with Payne's gray, but um, it's it's this really interesting deep blue mixed with a little bit of black, I believe. Um, and you mix it into a base tone, and you've got this really interesting shadow color that that pretty matches the tonality of the original color you were using. So the, the the problem with trying to paint a blue a pure blue is despite it's still reading as blue, is you can't influence with those other colors. Like if you mix in too much red, it's gonna look purple ish. If right. you mix in too much green, it's gonna look cyan or greenish. 
So getting that pure blue, I think mixing in paints gray is a, is a really good way to do that. Um, you could do it with black, of course. Um, it's just going to give you a more desaturated look that will, you know, it isn't wrong. It's just maybe won't necessarily read as true blue. Um, to highlight the true blue, uh, the, the thing that I would suggest is um, actually a Verdigris paint. So it, it's this very greenish uh, white paint. Um, I, I guess Verdigris, like, like you could picture the color that oxidizes on copper. That's right. how I typically highlight my true blue. I, I think that that's a really great way to achieve that look. Um, the tip there, again, with red is blue is a really interesting color that you can glaze over. So, so blue takes glazing extremely well. So, typically, how I'll try to achieve that look is I'll, you know, pick the pick the most neutral blue that I have, um, mix in a little bit of Payne's gray ink for my shadow tone, move up through that that neutral blue, start mixing in some Verdigris paint, and then uh, glaze that back down to get you that that blue look. Um, I think that's a pretty solid starting recipe. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, for, for me, like blue, the idea of kind of doing different stuff with blue, uh, again, my brain doesn't normally work that way. And so this is something I've only kind of recently discovered. And what I tried to do when I did my repaint uh, is because I tried a new blue recipe when I was doing my shield cap. And it's a very, very vibrant, uh, and it uses primary blue, which comes in the, mine is the, uh, what do you call it, the scale color artist range. Uh, they have like a primary set that just has your basic colors. Or they have one called Ocean 6 that comes with a bunch of blues. And so I used primary blue as kind of my main uh, and then kind of played with that. And it gives a very different blue that I think is probably going to be my my go-to blue color when I'm just trying to do kind of a basic blue. Uh, but... I think you're right that it's one of those ones where if you play too much with different colors and different directions, it kind of fundamentally changes how that blue looks. And that if that's what you're going for is great, but you have to be wary of that because if that's not what you're going for, then you're going to, you're going to get results you didn't want. That's, yeah. That's really it's, point. And, and there's nothing wrong with experimenting. Like, like a lot of these different color mixes are kind of like the results of going for different looks. Um, Honestly, a really great exercise is um, just mixing stuff on your palette. Um, if you have a wet palette, just mixing stuff on that, seeing how it looks. You know, it, I I could do a better job of this, but if you, if you have like a test model, like slapping some of that on there. Um, Vince Venturella has a really great series where he goes over a lot of you know understanding colors in these ways, where where he you know shows some of what I'm talking about here. But um, yeah. So do you, so you know that that is maybe the more comic book very saturated true blue Captain America. Do you want to talk about how you kind of did a desaturated blue look on yours? Sure. Yeah. So uh, because I had just done the really vibrant shield cap, I, I was like, okay, let me try something different because I you know my my core cap. I didn't really have that understanding of color and, and playing around with it and trying new things with it. So I just painted it the way I understood it as blue. And this time I was like, you know, I had noticed the, the kind of more MCU style outfit that he's wearing. And I thought, you know what, why don't I lean into that? Why don't I go with a more kind of desaturated, like something you'd actually see him have 
if you were watching like one of the Captain America movies. And so what I decided to do, and this was a bit of an experiment, I, I suspected it would work just based off what I've come to understand about using highlight colors. Uh, like if you mix white in with when you go to highlight stuff, it, it kind of gives you a more muted, and I guess another way to put muted would be dull. It dull in the sense that it doesn't have the same vibrancy that it would if you were using some other color. Like a lot of people recommend using like a pale yellow, uh, like a vanilla white or something along those lines. A scale color has a white sans color that's kind of like an off-white that uh, Sarastro will often use when he's mixing things into his paint jobs for using highlights. And the reason they're not using a pure white is because not using a pure white gives you uh, just some more color variation and interest. It makes the colors a little more vibrant. But I intentionally wanted to go away from that because I wanted to get kind of a more muted color. And so I just went standard white, slowly mixed into my base coat and highlight tones. Uh, and the end result was, you know, I got a model that to me looks like he comes straight out of the MCU. Uh, and, and also, with everything kind of being more toned down, it focused more attention on a shield, uh, which allows me to kind of more highlight the the work I put into the non-metallic metal on the shield. So I think I'm pretty happy with how it came out. I think it was an interesting experiment. I would say it was largely a success in terms of what I was trying to do. I think I accomplished it, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it looks great. So, so I'm I'm curious what what kind of tone did you start with in your base? Because because be looking at it, I I see a fair bit of, uh, not not green but green influence. Mm. Was that something intentional or was it? Um... Yeah. So essentially, uh, this the way I went about doing that. I I guess I should have mentioned that is is while we are talking about blue, I didn't even really mention the actual colors I used. Did I? I was too caught up in the highlight process. Yeah. So for the base coat, I knew I wanted to go intentionally kind of more uh, denim because with the shield cap, I was going a very vibrant blue, and I knew I didn't want to do that here. And I also because of the MCU kind of tone of his outfit i wanted to go with something that looked kind of more denim and so looking through my paints i came across uh scale colors caspian blue and bearing blue which have a little bit of of kind of a i, I suppose you could call it a green influence i think caspian blue does have a little bit of a green in there uh it it, it looks blue but it looks a little off for me i would have said it's kind of a grayish blue but I think you're probably right that there is some green in there. Uh, so I used Caspian Blue as a base coat, and then I, I layered up into a Bearing Blue. Uh, and then once I was at Bearing Blue, I started mixing in whites. And so that's how I ended up with that blue. And it gives you, I think, a very kind of denim... You know, like if I were to do jeans, this is probably the recipe I'm going to use if I'm just giving somebody some you know, some blue jeans. Yeah, it's it's a really great uh jean recipe. The, the the one thing that I would suggest um you know trying uh it it not obviously not for Captain America, but if you're trying actual jeans, I, I think that you want to mix in a little bit of yellow sure. in the top. If if you look at uh if you look at jeans that the the faded areas are actually like a little bit of a greenish blue with when they uh they wear. 
So that, that's typically my go-to. But yeah, for, for this type of outfit, you know, mixing in white's absolutely the right way to go. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely think, um, you know, I probably because I, I think the original one that I did, uh, I was kind of trying to follow uh, Sarastro's guide a little bit, and I think he was mixing in like some pale yellows to it. And so I think I did it on the first one, but then this one, because I was intentionally trying to go with that desaturation or that mm -hmm. more muted tone, I did the whites. But yeah, I think normally I would default into using like a pale yellow for the highlights. So Yeah, absolutely. Uh so I the the last way, you know, I, I would suggest experimenting with blue is is to get that very cyan look. So cyan is a version of blue that, you know, has some green mixed into it. If you have cyan ink, you know, if you're on the CMY color system, then maybe that's your primary color. But, you know, kind of how I think about cyan is is green and blue or, or greenish blue is, is a solid way to think about it. Um, for And, and you know, if, if you think about it mentally, that that's kind of the, the X-Men version of blue versus the Captain America style of blue. So... When you say X Men oh. version of blue, um, I'm having, having trouble picturing that. What uh, can you give me an example? Uh, like I guess Cyclops, right? Like like Cyclops's blue uniform, I, in my mind, is is a lot more green than than like something like Captain America. Okay. Uh, let's see. I go find a picture here. Um, but at any rate. So a, a good way to achieve that is is instead, you know, I, I would still mix in paints gray ink depending on your lighting environment. I would also suggest um, instead of using verdigris, it gives you that more natural looking blue. I would mix in a little bit of uh, ice yellow from Vallejo. Is a well, a lot of companies make it, but I use a Vallejo ice yellow. That's a really phenomenal color that that gives you a very natural look, but also like. Because it is an actual yellow, it pushes your blue more towards the green spectrum, and uh, right, you know, you're you're off to the races there. Yeah, I I've always had a uh, I've always loved like cyan and turquoise that kind of uh, realm of blue green mix. Um, those colors have always really appealed to me, and I'm kind of sad that you don't see them as often. Uh, yeah, they're I, really I, great colors. I wish that there were more characters that had those colors just kind of naturally in their color palette. And and maybe we'll get more of that as more stuff comes out. For sure. Well, I, I think that that wraps up our discussion on blue, unless unless there was anything you wanted to add. Uh, no, no. I think we, we pretty well covered it. All right. So that brings us to our superpower, which we've, we've hinted at a little bit here. But we're going to talk about, you know, non-metallic metal on the shield. Um, I will say... I, I want to talk about thinking about non-metallic metal generally right. um, in, in a very basic way. Uh, it's, it's a very deep <laughs> and uh, topic that you know I, I'm not an expert in. Uh, it's something to always master, but um, hopefully we can give you, the listeners, a little bit to get started with as, as far as concepts. Maybe I'll, I'll take that angle. And since you have redone your non-metallic metal in, in, I should say, a fantastic way, Maybe you want to talk a little bit more about the recipe that you has on your shield, you know, how, sure. how to smooth the blends, like like how you think about blending, um, et cetera. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, happy to. Um, yeah, so my first time doing the non-metallic metal was the first time I painted uh, Captain America's shield for the first time around. And I didn't know I was doing non-metallic metal at the time because I don't believe Sarastro in his video ever actually calls it by its name, which I actually really appreciate because it stopped me from not trying it by being intimidated. Because uh, had he said, oh, I did non-metallic metal for the shield, I'd be like, fuck, God, that's one of those expert things. I'm not going to do non-metallic metal. But fortunately, he didn't. He just said, hey, I did this, and then I did this, and I did this. And, and so I just followed that. And that's what caused me to get way better results than I ever had before. And it's the reason why I'm now, you know, doing non-metallic metal Hulkbusters and like an Omega Red where all his tentacles are non-metallic metal and stuff I never would have considered a few years back. So uh, the, the stuff we talked about earlier with kind of futzing, uh, going back and doing glazes and then building it up a little bit and then going playing, like just this constant playing with it, you're going to be doing a lot of that whenever you do non-metallic metal. Uh, I, I don't think you're going to get good non-metallic metal that you're happy with where you look at it and you go, man, that looks really cool without doing that. I, I It's just, it's a process of... It's playing with them, realizing it doesn't quite look right, so going back and tweaking it. You're just constantly doing that when you do non-metallic metal. Yeah, and, absolutely. And I think uh, a couple important things about non-metallic metal are, one, you need to have dark darks, and you need to have bright brights. Contrast is a very big deal for selling non-metallic metal. If you don't have some places on there that are very dark, and some places on there that are very bright, it just doesn't look like non-metallic metal. It'll look like, you know, it's that color. It'll look like it's been highlighted. It'll look painted. It'll look like stone if you're trying to do gray. Yeah, like it, you can make it look a lot of different ways, but it's not going to sell as like, oh, hey, that's kind of a shiny reflective metal if you don't simultaneously go really dark and really light. And so that's that's probably the biggest advice I could give if you're doing non-metallic metal. And the other, uh, the, the other, I would say, two points I would add to that are edge highlighting is very important. Uh, when you have metallic, when something is metal and kind of shiny, anywhere an edge hits, you can think of that as the surface of it kind of wrapping around something right and so when you're wrapping around what's actually happening is it's catching light from tons of different directions which means you're gonna get brightness on that edge so if you're doing non-metallic metal making sure that you have a nice bright edge often helps a lot uh, you can definitely overdo that so you don't want to become too reliant on it but it is, generally speaking, a good way to go. The more bright edges you have, the better you're going to sell the non-metallic metal effect. Um, and especially if you don't have any bright edges, uh, you're going to end up, you know, it's not going to look, it's not going to read to the eye like non-metallic metal. Uh, and then the other thing, and I, I did an entire post about this because this was kind of a lesson I learned when I was doing my non-metallic metal Hulkbuster, was... You, you have to really think about things in terms of your painting volumes, right? So it's a series of cylinders and spheres and, and, and you know, boxes, rectangles, uh, oblong spheres, oblong cylinders, like things that are 
you have to think of it in terms of a series of shapes and how the light is hitting them. And especially with non-metallic metal, where is like the, the kind of zenith of the light? Meaning where is most of the light hitting? And, and that's where you're going to get kind of lines of light where you're, you're going to have it be dark the farther away you get from that spot and brighter the closer you get to that spot. And that's how you can naturally work in your bright brights and your dark darks. And then you can go in and do the edge highlighting on the sides of all of it. And that'll sell you your non-metallic metal effect. But making sure that you have lines of light that feel natural and realistic, like they feel like, yes, that's where light would hit. So for instance, if you're doing, and Captain America Shield, unfortunately, is probably a bad example here because it's a disc and he, he has it kind of almost surface level. So it's not at all obvious with him where those lights, lines of light should be hitting, which in some ways is a bad thing because it doesn't help you to paint it naturally. But in other ways, it can be considered a good thing because it allows you a little more freedom in where you want to put those lines of light. But generally speaking, with this shield, I would recommend doing is you want a central point in the middle of the star, and then you want your line of lights, or, or sorry, your lines of light, to go outward to the edge of the shield from that central point. Uh, and, and just looking up any, like, you know, you could do Captain America shield Google image search, and you should see shiny reflective versions of it uh or non-metallic metal captain america shield you, you can find a million examples of something like this but but most of them kind of rely on this technique of you have the lines of light that come out from the center of the shield and it gives it a very disc feel it it sells it as kind of a this is a shiny reflective disc and that's, that's the other big point of advice I would give when trying to do non-metallic metal, particularly in regards to his shield. Yeah, I, I think that, that that's all great advice. Yeah, um, you, you touched on the the shapes. Like, um, you really, you know, what, what I recommend doing is, is looking up um, just pictures of metallic shapes. It gives you a really good idea of... Um, where the highlights should be. And, and this goes for non-metallic metal, but, but really any type of painting, like... Um, you could really break down a lot of models into fundamental shapes. You know, the head is going to be a sphere. The the legs are going to be cylinders. Um, hands or fists are typically going to be spheres. It kind of help you tell where you should put your highlights. Um, doing non-metallic metal or not, it's just much more important with non-metallic metal. Yeah, I'm I'm so um, glad you mentioned that actually because that it, it makes me realize that I think. I would highly recommend anyone, especially if you're intimidated at the idea of it, just make yourself do something in non-metallic metal. Like pick pick a model, pick whatever it is, a belt buckle, a sword, a shield, uh, whatever it is, and just do it non-metallic metal. Because there's so much emphasis on volumetric highlighting, on trying to figure out where the shadows would fall, where where to figure out where the highlights should fall. That stuff is applicable. And then, of course, the futzing, the going back and forth of, like, I'm going to highlight that up, and ooh, that doesn't really look good. Let me glaze it down a little bit. And that playing back and forth and that emphasis on vol volumetric highlighting, you're not just learning how to, on metallic metal paint, you're actually learning how to paint everything. Th those 
principles that you're learning when you do that apply to every single thing you could ever paint. Uh, I think it helps tremendously at becoming a better painter. Uh, so I know it intimidates people. Non-metallic metal is one of those things that you you know people hear it and, it, and they're thinking it's crazy expert level stuff. Uh, just make yourself do it. Just learn it. You'll 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 yeah. eventually be a really good painter because of it. I, and, and the nice thing about non-metallic metal is if you don't quite nail it, it doesn't look bad. It it, it looks you know relatively decent. Like there's plenty of non-metallic metal in my you know collection of painted miniatures that is not doesn't look like metal but it looks totally fine so again you know i I think that there's a lot of worry about oh am i going to mess up my model at least there was for me like picking up non-metallic metal i I promise you you won't and uh if you if you really really don't like it hey you can just paint metallic paint over it and then uh try again tomorrow um so i i want to add a couple of things to to your points um the Painting colored non-metallic metal is is it's difficult. Um, as you kind of there, there's one component of non-metallic metal, which is exactly what you described. Get the fundamental shapes correctly. Think about your lighting source. Think about your lighting source and how it would hit the model. Um, a lot of the time, you know, your lighting source on these models is going to kind of be up and to the left or to the right. Um, it, it matters for non-metallic metal because it. You really, if if you look at a can of soda, which is you know the easiest thing that's that's kind of shiny, reflective, and in, in the day to day life, you take two steps to the left or two steps to the right, it looks completely different than you know in either of those two states. So, metal reflections are a function of the metal, how reflective the metal is, where the light source is, and where the viewer is. Um, so typically, you know, with with tabletop miniatures games, I I just kind of do, you know, I'm looking at it to the front, um, maybe maybe a little bit to the back. So th- thinking about your reflections in that way, very important to selling the effect, um, and and that that's kind of what you went over. The the thing that I want to talk about a little bit, something I've been trying about with more is the the more intense the light is, that that you know it's reflecting, the more the light is going to influence that color so a lot of the time you know what keeps non-metallic metal from from looking good is a lack of color influence from your lighting source a lot of time your lighting source is going to be the sky Um, a lot of time people you know will paint steel as blue it's because a lot of the time steel has very little actual substrate color you know steel just reflects the environment around it maybe it looks a little gray and neutral light but steel outside is going to be reflecting the sky so it's going to be blue um the bottom of that is going to reflect the earth which is going to be black so think about what the um what the metal is actually reflecting and that can kind of help you pick out some colors um if you're doing non-metallic gold it gets a little tricky because you know you're starting with a, a substrate color of, of uh, I guess, ochre or gold in there. Um, if you're starting with red with Captain America, um, you know, red is your substrate color. You have to kind of think about how does a blue sky interact with red? How does a yellow light interact with red? And it goes back to the idea of, you know, making it, pushing it towards that color, 
and then glazing it back over. Um, just something to think about. Uh, yeah, the, the the white is particularly tricky because I think, you know, depending on if you do a comic book look or MCU look, the white on the shield is actually steel or is kind of a, a white, um, a, like a true white metal. So, you know, your non-metallic metal MCU, Steve, is, is very uh, realistic because you painted steel, whereas, you know, your comic book and, and mine to a lesser degree, I tried to paint an actual white metal, which would have less reflections and show through that substrate metal a little bit more. So, so, so I suppose the only thing I'm, I'm really adding here is, is think about what the metal is reflecting. And, and try to incorporate some of that color into your non-metallic metal. I think it helps sell the effect a little bit more too. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and I, I experimented a bit with that when I think I first did it with uh, probably Bob. I did uh, Bob Agent of Hydra, and I did a chromed out like rocket on it, and uh, doing Sky Earth. And basically, I I went all in on the sky and the earth, but nothing else is reflected. So it's it was a bit of an experiment, and it it looks a little weird because he has a super reflective rocket, but you don't see anything else in it, just the sky and the earth. Uh, but it got me thinking about things in that manner. It got me thinking about kind of what it's reflecting and things like that. And it helped out a lot later when I started doing more uh, non-metallic metal type stuff and just thinking of it in terms of a combination of what type of metal is it? Is it gold? Is it steel? Is it, you know, a colored like, like the, the bands on Steve Shield? Uh, and then what is being reflected off of it? Uh, it, it definitely, the more you do non-metallic metal, the more you're going to need to be cognizant of that but I, I would for anyone that's looking to dive into it from the beginning i would focus more on the fundamentals and you can start wrapping in like secondary reflections and, and things like that uh once you get more comfortable with just the process of highlight placement and shadows and stuff like that yeah absolutely yeah that, that you know um like everything in painting there's, there's always another layer to look into definitely the 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 thing to get started on non-metallic metal is to think about the highlight placement, think about where your lighting source is, and and um, get that uh, get the contrast that matches the, the texture of the metal. So if you're going for a very polished metal look, it should be very high contrast. You should go from light to dark very quickly. If you're going for more of a worn metal look, you know your your gradient should be more smooth. Um, yeah, I I think it's, it's something to look at. Um, you know, we we kind of hinted at this, but but using you know um, reference images is is very uh, very useful when trying to do this. Like um, use reference images, and on, honestly, for me, the the thing that really helped me kind of learn how to paint this type of stuff is I just looked at stuff. Like once you become aware of these things, um, when you're out and about in you know the real world. Uh, just look at stuff and look how it looks. Think about where the lighting's coming from. Think about what's going around it. Like I get really distracted when I go into a bathroom these days because I'm just looking at the faucets and mm. um, like just seeing how the reflection plays off of that. Like kind of moving my head around to just see that. So the more you conceptualize that in the miniatures, it's kind of a feedback loop where, okay, I'm thinking about how it should look on a miniature. You go look outside. You you know, in your day-to-day -day life, you see something metal, you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Let me try to put that in a miniature. You get a feedback loop where 
if you start to think about these things, you think about them a little bit more, you can observe and absorb more information, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, it's another way to kind of help improve your non-metallic metal. I mean, yeah. it's no replacement for painting and, and actually practicing, but sure, uh, sure. it certainly does help. I was going to mention cars. That's the big one I notice yeah. now is anytime a car is even, you know, because most cars have kind of a shine to them, even if they're, mm -hmm. even if they're somewhat dirty or whatever. And, and they often have very unique shaping of the body and it provides a good opportunity to kind of look at it and notice what is being reflected and what, how is the shape of the body of it changing the reflection, stuff like that. And it can give you uh it could give you really interesting ideas in terms of how to play with light when you're doing highlighting, especially on something like non-metallic metal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, with that being said, there's a, definitely a lot more that we could talk about, but I will have to stop myself. Um, mm -hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to mention for Captain America before we close the book on him? No, I think I think that pretty well covers I mean, you know again like you said this is something you could probably go on about forever so i'd say let's get on to red skull before uh before he has a chance to actually turn cap into a hydra agent yeah yeah before too long all right so so shifting our attention to red skull we we talked about the red and i think that for this one we were talking about it i, I wanted to give maybe a quick tip on painting black um i don't want to do a full deep dive on black here but mostly because you know we're talking about red, we're talking about blue. Um, Got to save some for later, but black is obviously a uh, a big component of this model. R red School is actually the second MCP model I painted, and it is the um, first one that I didn't airbrush and watch. Because the first one I did was Ultron, but I, I really just airbrushed metal on him and, and did kind of a wash with, you know, put the red in the recesses. So Red School was the first one I actually like painted. And I found the black, as many people did, to be very difficult to kind of conceptualize. Um, my, mine looks like a very, you know, muddied gray. But w one thing that I want to just give as a quick tip is if you're painting black, I, I very rarely start from actual black. I, I think if you start from actual black, you, you are you are setting yourself up for having a frustrating time mm -hmm. a true neutral black is is incredibly difficult to do in my mind it, you can obviously do it but i think that that is much harder to do and it's it's certainly much harder to do the larger surface area you're coloring because you know even if you do it well it's not going to look interesting and the reason it's not going to look interesting is because true neutral black just does not exist anywhere uh, again to the idea of you know, going outside and looking at things, I'm looking straight down at my keyboard, which is black, but it's not actually black. It's orange on one side because I have sunlight coming in through the window. It's maybe brown on the other side because it's reflecting my wall. Um, the top of it is you know, maybe a little bit closer to black because it's not really anything being reflected there, but there, there's very few things that are true neutral black. Maybe, maybe if you look at, you know, a black piece of paper on a cloudy day, that's what would be uh, neutral black but but that's not really what we're painting right we're painting red skull who's you know standing on a city street or standing in a battlefield uh maybe his his black leather is a little bit worn or maybe it's a shiny black leather uh but but really at the end of the day it's it's not going to be black 
So to the actual point of all of that is that the tip that I would say for painting black is to not start with black, to start with a very deep either purple, blue, or a, um, like a, if, if you're going for, a, those, those will give you very cold blacks, like um, something that, that is more leather, like, uh, I guess what's another example? They'll give you a cold looking black and maybe another episode we can talk more about what I mean. Um, but if you want to go for a warmer type of black, like I would do with Red Skull, I, I would start from a very, I, I would mix in just a little bit of brown into a, a into a black, and then you're going to get a very nice looking black. A, a really good black actually to start with is Rubber Black from AK Interactive. That's a really good black brown that um, if, if I do a warm black these days, I, I really start from there. Yeah, so it's it's paradoxical. You, you know, you're painting black, but you want to use as little black paint as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the trick. So this this for me was a big part of my journey is because I had stumbled across this idea of the high contrast, where you want to bring everything to white and then go as dark as you can with it, so that everything has that blop effect where it stands out and it's it's striking to look at. I was obsessed with trying to get that down, but then I had to go paint models like Black Widow or Red Skull that are almost entirely black. And it's like, wait, I have to take black all the way to white. Oh, okay. And so not knowing anything about color theory or how to paint black effectively and make it look good, I with what logically your brain would jump to if you didn't know any of those things, which is I've got black, I've got grays, I'm going to take black, paint in black, and then I'm going to take grays, and I'm going to like do layers and highlights of the grays and eventually get to white. And it looks chalky, unnatural. Uh, it, it has no visual kind of color interest. Uh, it, of course, all of this isn't helped by the fact that I didn't have the best brush control. I'm sure if I had mm. better brush control, I could probably make this look better. But generally speaking, it's a very way to go about painting black it doesn't look right and a lot of what we're saying about black also kind of applies to white white is another color that you're not actually painting white the vast vast majority of it you're painting a color that is just just shy of white you're using like pale grays and then you're building up and eventually you'll get like little tiny dots of actual white as your like specular highlights same thing with black with with black you're not painting black you're taking some very dark color and you're using that as like your base coat and then you're mixing something else in with that usually to give you your your highlights and and your you know your layers you don't want to just go black on a model because you're it's it's really hard to that and turn that into anything uh meaningful and i and i think yeah I, I think red skull is a good example to dive in on that because one of the things i do like about red skull is he does have less of a a canon outfit than cap does right with captain america there's not a whole lot of deviation you can do on his outfit because it's obvious was to be red, white, and blue based on just who he is as a character. So unless you're going to do some alternate scheme like Hydra Cap or something like that, you're you're kind of you're kind of set in what needs to be what color. And that's less so with Red Skull, right? Because he's just wearing a trench coat. And sure, you could have it be black, but you could also have it be the color of a trench coat. And then he has these, or even green, right? Green's a big deal. You could even do army green. That's that's all the time used in a lot of Hydra stuff. And then uh, he's got his 
wraps that go down them. You can do those different colors. There's a lot of stuff you can play around with him, but I think the one we see way more often than anything else is black. And so I, I think it's good that, that we're hitting on that in terms of how to accomplish that. The, the recipe I've kind of fallen into, uh, to your point, I take Scale Color Artist's Prussian Blue, which is a very, That's very a deep yep. blue. And then I mix in a little bit of black with it. Mix in vanilla yellow, just a little bit. And what you end up with, so, well, before you mix in the vanilla yellow, just the Prussian blue and the black will give you a very deep blue. And that is my base coat for anything that is going to be black. And then from there, I will mix in progressively more and more vanilla yellow to do my highlight my layering and my highlights and mixing in the yellow takes it up into gray but the on that the blue is powerful enough that it never really hits despite the fact that you're using a yellow it never really hits green it always kind of feels gray allows you to kind of naturally transition from a very dark color that your eye reads as black into something that is like a highlighted version of it and it just looks much more natural yeah yeah without a doubt and i mean it, it, for the listeners um you know th there's a lot of great red skulls out there that you could look at to, to see this but I, I i think actually a really good one to look at it is is the box art if, if you go to the amg gallery website and look at the box art and you just look at it nothing on that model is black it's it's a uh it reads as black because of how thin the highlights are, but predominantly the colors are, you know, a brownish bluish gray versus an actual bluish gray. It's a pretty good thing if you just look at it for a few minutes, but you can kind of see what we're talking about where it still looks black because of that's how your your mind sees it, but um, it's not great. And your mind your mind sees it that way because the size of the highlights are smaller than you would paint something that is gray. That's kind of how you prevent it from looking at gray. We'll talk more about black later. Uh, just, you know, the, the tip there, uh, don't use black as much. Use deep pressure yeah. blue is gray. Um, I think uh, um, tire, tire black is really good from AK Interactive. Um, Vallejo has some that are escaping me. Um, I really like anthracite gray. Yeah, I like to mix black one. with anthracite gray. That one's really good. Um, yeah, so a quick little builder there. I, I, I wanted to talk about this because and, and what kind of inspired me to talk about the next little spender here um, is painting eyeballs. <laughs> this is, you know, maybe for me, painting black, you could, you could paint black wrong and it'll look fine. But if you paint the eyeballs wrong, you, you're going to be <laughs> the most unhappy person on the planet. Oh, yeah. Brains, brains do a really good job of trying to pattern recognize what it's seeing to what it expects. So the closer you get to a, you know, a face looking thing, the weirder the stuff that isn't right um, pops out to you. You know, a lot of people re recognize that as an uncanny valley. So the closer you get your miniatures' faces to look like actual faces, which they should, the more the stuff that isn't right stands out to you because your your brain has so much space dedicated to recognizing faces. So, it, you know, it's important to get your eyeballs correctly. And at the same time, it is probably the most frustrating thing to paint. 
So I want to give, you know, I'm calling this a spender, but th this is maybe four quick tips to, you know, uh, get your eyeballs to at least start to look good. Uh, the first tip that I want to say, and, and feel free to jump in if, if you have any that are along with this, but the first one is when, when you're painting the face, um, I would start with the eyeballs and I would give the area around the eyeballs a much darker tone than the rest of the skin tone. So it like um, it, it, it's going to start out, and again, this goes back to that, it's, it's not a linear process. I basically paint my my face the base color I want. I mix in like a lot of black into that, and then I slap it into the eyeball sockets. So it looks like they're wearing like some really bad mascara. Uh, once you get there, I then put the whites where the eyes should be, and I don't worry about it being too big. Um, I, I get those in the right place. With, but you have to make sure that that black area is entirely around those whites that you just put in. I then paint the pupil. Um, and then the, the thing that brings it all together is clean up. So depending on um, the type of look you're going for, I push that base skin tone. Where that black meets that base skin tone, I will push that back so that that black line becomes thinner and thinner. You don't necessarily want it to disappear because that's how you get like um, your eyes standing out from your skin tone. But you also don't want it to um, be so big that it looks like they're you know still wearing bad mascara. So you push your base skin tone back towards the eyes, and then um, you push that black line over the eyeball so you shape the eyeball. Again, it's it's not one of these things that you get right in the first pass, but it's um, you know, I, I think the trick there is to start with your base skin tone, mix in black, and paint that in the eyeball sockets. Then once you have the eyeball, paint your skin back up to where you know the eyeball looks good. I, I that's kind of my general process to get them looking good. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that's that's great advice. I I think. Uh... One of the nice things about doing kind of the starting with the black is the last thing you want to do is get the face all painted and then go in and like paint black in the eye and then try to push it in because now you're you're maybe messing up your face work that you already did. So I think starting with the eye is absolutely the right way to go. Um, I think another interesting thing with that too is that if you are if you're going in there and using the black, um, it's especially uh, useful when you are painting like a female face, because then even if you don't do the best job of cleaning up like the line around it, uh, it will still read to the eye from a distance as, as like being up essentially. And so them having black around the eye is way less of an issue when you're dealing with like female faces. Um, but I, I still think it's a good thing to do, even if you're doing a male face because of that reason that it, it, draws a distinction between where the eye and the face are. You just yeah, need to be a little more careful about cleaning it up when you're dealing with a male face. Yeah, especially at this scale. And, and it's a difference between using actual black, like I would do on a female face, and, and using black mixed in with your skin tone to right, desaturate right. it and get that. Um, the nice thing about black is, is, is that if you mix in black with your skin tone, it typically pushes it more towards blue. And if you look at skin like in a, in a picture, the the deeper recesses are more blue influence. So, so it does look a little bit natural depending on 
you know, if you can get your black mixed in, right? Again, another instance where Payne's Gray makes a very good black replacement. I actually usually use Payne's Gray instead of black. Uh, the other part I wanted to hit, and, and maybe where I think most people have trouble, is painting the actual pupils. Because this is one of those things, if you don't get it exactly right, your eyes are looking two different ways, you yeah. hate it. Um, so, you know, the, the, the second main part of this is I very heavily use micron pens. I know that this is a tip that's out there. Um, I think that they're really great for painting pupils. Uh, it, it's if, for people who don't know, if, if you get a micron pen, I think it's the brand or it's the type of pen, but effectively it's, it's an ink pen that has a very, very fine tip to it. And, you know, with some practice, you can get very sharp and small black lines. Um, and, and that's typically what I'll use for my pupils. It's, it's a really effective thing. Every time I try to use a brush, um, you can use a brush. The, the trick, though, is you need your eyeball to be very opaque, but you also need your paint to flow really well. So, you know, if you mix in too much flow improver, your eyeball is going to look, you know, not fully black, and it's not going to give you a nice sharp line, which is going to look weird. So then you have to reinforce your black. Well, now you have to paint that small line twice in the exact same spot. You want to mess that up. Um, if you don't mix in that flow improver or water, it's not going to be thin enough that it's going to dry on your brush. You're not going to get that sharp line. You really have to fight with your brush, I find, to do this. Or the micron pen works really well. You know, you kind of have to practice with it to get your placement between the two eyes right. But it takes away that element of fighting with your brush to get that on there. The The tip on top of the tip is I've recently found the micron pins are really great. You can get like the smallest pin tip possible, but they make a brush tip version of the micron pins that I, I think are just phenomenal. Interesting. I, I've painted out like five sets of eyeballs with them. It's this incredibly sharp point. And, you know, I, I get it right every time with this micron pen. I don't, you know, the the brush tip is a little bit more familiar to my hands, you know, working with the brush. The, the tip is nice, but because, you know, it doesn't matter how narrow you get it, at the end of the day, there's still a bit of a, a square at the end of it. Um, you don't necessarily get as sharp lines and if you have the brush tip. So that, that's kind of the, the second level piece of advice is if you can find one, I would get a brush tip micron pen. Uh, but if you can't, I would just get a micron pen. Interesting. Yeah, I uh, I recently picked up a set of the micron pins because I painted Gambit, and I wanted to do like the faces on the cards, make it look mm -hmm. like an Ace of Hearts or whatever, uh, or, or Heart of Aces, Ace of, Ace of Hearts. Yeah, Hearts. <laughs> uh, I I didn't want to freehand that. I was like, ah, oh, that that seems like it's going to be a nightmare. And I did like this glow effect on the cards, so I I, I picked up some micron pens so I could do that never occurred to me to try to do that with the eyes that's a great idea as as we were discussing before the show i'm currently working on a howard the duck model <laughs> and uh i've been trying to figure out how to go about doing his eyes and so maybe i'll do that maybe i'll grab one of my little micron pens and try to see if i can do the pupil that way i think i think yeah i yeah, my... sorry go ahead oh go ahead no you go uh, so I, eyes are one of those things where for the longest time I didn't want to do them just because intimidation and it being a pain and it 
like every time I tried doing an eye, it looked awful. And it's one of those things where if you don't do it right, it can really detract from a model. However, it's one of those things where if you do it well, it can really elevate a model. And so what, what I would say with to anybody that's kind of stressing about eyes is there's a couple ways you can go about it. Uh, one is remember the scale that you're looking at and that realistically you cannot paint eyes on the vast majority of your models and it's not going to really affect the way it reads on a table from a distance like when you're playing a game it's not something that's going to stand out and bother you most of my models don't have their eyes painted and it's fine uh, but obviously you're holding yourself back as a painter because you're not taking on a challenge right and on top of that you can really elevate a model if you do a good job of it so using those quick tips to try and just make the eyes happen and get that practice in is definitely worth it because you you will grow as a painter doing it and you will get more and more impressive models i remember when i when i first started going okay i'm gonna make myself just start doing the eyes uh for a while it I was getting ugly results, but then eventually I think the first one where I felt like, oh man, nailed it, was when I was painting Enchantress, and I, I did that effect on her eyes, and it model looked so much better with the nicely done eyes than it did without them, and that made me realize, like, man, I, I've been holding myself back by not doing this. I, I should have been practicing this from the get-go. So it's definitely one of those things that it's a pain point. I understand why people don't want to do it, but pushing yourself, you'll just get better and better at it. And eventually you'll have, you know, really striking looking models because of it. And I think the, the pen point thing, especially a pen brush, I didn't, I didn't know they had those. That's pretty cool. I'm going to look into that. Yeah. It was something I found. I was, I was walking around, um, you know, an art supply store and I saw it and I figured I'd give it a try. And man, it was, it was, uh, near life-changing because i still struggle a lot with the micron pens themselves but that does bring me to the final piece of advice i have here is um i completely agree with what moriart has said you you really sh should try it at least you know it, if you don't care it's not your hobby goal as we always say you know whatever um you don't know you don't need to but it does elevate the model and the other thing that i would say is uh if if you don't like how it looks, just paint over it. It's it's not a linear process. Um, there a lot of the models that I have, you know, if if you went to microscopic level, there's maybe 15 layers of paint underneath those. So, I've definitely you know, painted an eye, touched it up, didn't like how it looked, redid all of those steps, painted the eye, retouched how it looked. Like it's going back and forth until you get it there. It's very frustrating. It's very time consuming. But as you continue to do it. That's how you build um, brush control. Like, uh, you know, painting is like any other muscle group. It's it's a fine muscle that you build. You're building mus muscle control. You're building hand-eye coordination at a small scale. Even though you're not moving forward on the model itself, you are still growing as a painter as long as you're, you know, trying. So I think that eyes are a really great way to try to build that fine muscle control. Um, and, and they help bring out the model. That's a good point. And the reason I bring it up because I look at I look at my red skull and he is cross-eyed. So I want to try to help people from gotcha. cross-eyed models. Yeah, mine doesn't even have eyes, even my repaint. So I need to I need to get on that.
Well, so that, that brings us to our superpower for Red Skull, and we are going to talk about object source lighting from the uh, the cube. So, you know, a lot of people do this effect really well. If, if you look at the Red Skull model, um, it's a cool model, but but frankly, you know, there's not a ton of detail on it. Like, there's some really interesting things with the straps, but the real focal point of the model is he's holding the Cosmic Cube out in his hand. Um, and, you know, in the MCU, that, that typically produces a lot of glow. So it's a very natural thing to want to do object source lighting off of your red skull. Yeah, he's a great model for that, for sure. So I actually did not do that on my model, but I have some advice and some things to think about uh, for object source lighting. Now, did you do OSL on your red skull? I'm trying to. Uh... Uh, not on my first time around. Uh, on my, my first time around, the idea of object source lighting was like, you know, are you kidding me? That It was another one of those things where uh, it had, had I known I was painting non-metallic metal when I did Cap Shield, I wouldn't have done it. And this time around, I knew that that's object source lighting. And so I was like, no, I'm you're crazy. I'm not doing that on my model because that's expert level stuff. And, uh, you know, that mentality is just what was holding me back. And object source lighting is something that I eventually decided to try and... I have lots and lots and lots of failures on it where it's overdone and it's kind of wonky. And then I have ones where even though it's overdone, it still kind of looks cool. And so I started kind of enjoying it anyway, even though, you know, you can look at it and pick it apart and say, this doesn't make sense and this is overdone. And I think my hood model is a perfect example of that. Way overdone. Still looks cool, but it's it it's not a well-done OSL. And then eventually I started realizing if I tone it down a bit, uh, I can still get that kind of cool look and, and you know, have it look striking and have it look good, but not look kind of blown out and ridiculous. And I think a good example of that is my, uh, the one I recently did by Baron Strucker. I'm really happy with how the, the OSL and him turned out. Uh, but I did, my second time around painting Red Skull, uh, I did do uh, object source lighting on him. Uh, so I can I can speak directly to that process. Yeah, well, well, maybe maybe I'll go through some of the things that I think about, and then you can follow up with how you apply them to your red skull. Um, the you know I, I think of object source lighting, and I, I think of three things: object source and lighting. <laughs> and I want to go through these in reverse order. So the lighting aspect of it, if if something is glowing. It is casting light. The one thing that really helps to sell an object source lighting effect is the places on your model where the light is hitting need to be brighter than highlights on other part of your models. If if you have your main light source be you know the sun and the sky, which is you know so many miles away, the lighting from the thing that he is holding two feet from him need to needs to be a, a brighter light source. That, that's with a lot of asterisks because obviously it depends on how bright that thing is. Maybe it's not quite as dominant a light source, but you at least need to consider that where depending on how bright the object is casting light, it needs to, you know, that's how you determine how light it is. But ultimately the area that it is hitting needs to be lightened to some degree. Maybe maybe I'll, I'll walk back what I said a little bit. If it's not a dominant light source, it doesn't need to be the brightest point, but at least needs to be lighter about the stuff immediately around it that isn't being lit. 
So the lighting aspect is one thing that helps sell object source lighting. The way to increase lighting is to increase values. Um, you can either do that with paints that have a very naturally higher value, like you know, with red skull, a a light cyan or or blue with white mixed into it is going to have a higher value than you know the black. So that that's one way to do it. Um, you can mix in white. You can um, keep the areas darker to do that. Um, but but you know the lighting aspect is is one thing that you know I think about when doing that. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's it's kind of funny that you broke it down as like three things: object source and lighting. But it it is a good way of actually spelling out what it is. I mean, it, I guess it's very aptly named. Is that you you have to think of the object that's giving the light, which is going to tell you where your placement is, uh, and then of course proximity to that. You're going to need to show that things on the model that are closer to the source are brighter than things that are further away. Uh, so it goes into everything of what edges you're highlighting uh, yeah. and then how bright you're highlighting them as. And uh, all of that feeds into how you do it. Uh, I, I would say the, the other thing for me, and this, this has proved a challenge for me when I was trying to do my Red Skull object source lighting, was some of the glow is on his face, right? Uh, and I suppose you could not do that if you wanted to. You can just have it produce enough light where it's kind of lighting up his hand and his, you know, maybe his shoulder and his arm that's holding the cube or something like that. But it it would be, I think, a missed opportunity to not have kind of part of his face lit up by the glow of the cube. It just looks cool. And that's where you run into an inter interesting issue because you want the light from the cube, if, if you're going with a Canon uh, paint scheme, of course, uh, it, to have kind of a blue feel to it, but his skull is red. And what I ran into was I highlighted his skull as if he were red, just normal. And then I went through and used like blue glazes to try and make it look like he had a blue glow coming from the uh, the, the the cube. And the problem was it made it look immediately purple. Now. The problem with that is that, the, and, and perhaps I don't understand color theory enough to know the issue here, but my eye did not read it as a glow from the cube. Like it, it being purple isn't necessarily a problem in and of itself, but for whatever reason, my eye read that as he, his face is purple, and then he's got this blue cube. Why isn't the cube reflecting blue light? And so what I ended up having to do was go back over it and essentially I highlighted the skull up as if it were not red. The sections that were going to get the OSL, I highlighted them up as if they were essentially white and then used the blue over that to get a uh, to get like an OSL effect. And it, it sells much better. It actually does make it look like it's being uh, lit up from the cube. Uh, but Red Skull is definitely one of my earlier attempts at at OSL, and it doesn't it doesn't look as good as more recent stuff I've done. Had I had I done that again, I think what I would have done is taken my base coat for his skull and worked it up into like a much more bright, vibrant blue. Uh, 
and just done that as a highlighting process instead of trying to take what was there, highlight it, and then glaze it. I think the highlighting and glaze it, I had it in my head that I could do that because I had like, and I don't think they even sell them anymore, but GW used to make like Bloodletter Red Glaze and Gilliman Blue Glaze. Uh, and I still have a couple pots of that. And I remember using the Blood Redder, or the Bloodletter Glaze for my Darth Vader Legion miniature that I did to do the glow of his saber. And so I just kind of had it in my head that, well, okay, I can use the same thing here with Gulliman Blue over his skull. And I wasn't thinking about how those colors interact. And so it created a bit of a problem for me, but I wasn't sure how to fix it. So instead I just went with, okay, I'm going to highlight it up with whites so that it looks less red and then use the blue glaze. And I think the result I got is kind of an underwhelming OSL. It, it's not, uh, it's definitely not how I would do it if I could do it now. If I were to do it now, I would just go uh, a much more, uh, a much more structured and thought out method where I'm using highlights to get there instead of just relying on a glaze. Yeah, for sure. And and I, I want to touch base on what you were saying on, on the red under the blue light. One of the most interesting things for me, and, and this goes into, in my mind, the object of this of the OSL. Um, one of the most interesting things to me was someone posted this picture that, that you know I'll have in the show notes and I sent to you is you know, the way that your rods and corneas interact in your eye, the the object casting the light will interact differently with the the actual color of the object that the light is being cast onto. So the the picture that I'm talking about here, and again, it'll be in the show notes, is is Skittles under different colors of lights. It's, it's a really good way to demonstrate this. So if, if you look at the top red, or the top right rather, that is under blue light. So if you look at the three red ones, they look completely black. The way that additive colors work is uh, if you put a blue filter over a red um, red object is that it will look black or it will look much darker than if you put it under a red filter. Um, those two things interact in your eyes to optically make it darker. Now that makes it tough for highlighting, um, you know, specifically highlighting the blue light cast from the cosmic cube onto red skull because, you know, like I just said, with the lighting portion of object source lighting, Despite blue mixing over red as being a darker color, well, it's casting lighter, so it needs to be higher in values. So how do you achieve that? So I would actually disagree with you. I think that the way that you did it on your red skull is a very good way of doing that, where the blue would desaturate your red. It would make it lighter in value. And um, I would actually make the, the shadows around his face a lot deeper because that's where the blue would be mixing in with the shadow color making it a lot deeper there. Interesting. So you're um, so you're saying essentially what I did is fine, but then what I should do if I wanted to really sell the effect is rather than go and try to punch up the highlights, I'm trying to essentially punch down the shadows around it to make it look like that blue light is really darkening the shadowed portions of his skull. Yeah, I think so. And and honestly, I I would have to like actually really um do some research on how to do it. Like like getting really convincing OSL. The reason I don't do it a lot is because it's kind of one off, right? Like like I don't have enough patterns in my head to think about. It. This is something that's a lot harder to go out and look like. Yeah, I want to see how a blue light looks over a red a red 
face mask. Like, like that's not something that I go out and see every day. <laughs> so it, you know, object source lighting is a very deep hole where you need to think about the color of the light and how that influences with the thing, how that's going to increase the value. And then um, just to touch on the source of the object source lighting, you know, light casts in, a, in an orb or a cone effectively. So making sure that it hits all parts of, of um, yeah, hitting all parts of, of what it would naturally hit is really important. Yeah. Um, and then getting the lighting right on that. So, so the, you know, the two things that I think are interesting are you, you want to make sure that you're going up in value on the stuff that light is being cast onto. And you want to properly account for the color influence of the light is kind of how I think about it. So, you know, on the black, it's really easy. It's going to shift that into blue, and that's where the glazing is more appropriate. But if you're casting light A onto object B, and those have compl- or those have um, non-complementary colors, that's something that you really need to think through. Like, if they're on the opposite side of the color wheel, those are going to interact in really interesting ways that you kind of have to think through when you're doing that. Um, you know the the structure that you've done and posted. It, it's kind of the opposite where you know you've done it perfectly. Where you know the the yellow, the red flame is going to push your yellow into more of that you know more saturated red, and then it's going to go out to white. The green is going to move up to yellow. Like that, that's a really good um, way to do it. But yeah, I mean the, the odd color lights are very difficult. Flames and um, like strobe lights from things are very easy. It gets it gets really interesting, and and you know, again, something to plant that seed and the idea of people of, well, hey, how how do I actually observe these objects in different lighting conditions? It's not necessarily like, oh, we're not glazing like like you said. It's not as easy as glazing blue over the object. You kind of need to think about, well, I'm glazing blue over a red object. How does that look? It doesn't look purple. It looks very deep. But how do I make that look interesting in miniatures? Maybe I move it up to blue. Um, you know, a really great uh, cinema is a really great to see this. Like you can look up, up like Blade Runner. You know, the new one is has a lot of very interesting cast color things. Mm. Um, I was, cinematography stills do a lot of that. Yeah, you, I was about to mention movie posters are a great example yeah, of exactly. this because one of the tricks that movie posters like to do, you'll notice a lot of combination of either blue and red or blue and mm-hmm. orange as and because it's they contrast so much and so movie poster people will often rely on like oh we're going to take our characters put them on the movie poster and then we're going to have blue light on one side and red light or orange light on the other side and the interesting thing about that is you'll get to see kind of what does a person's face look like when like half of it is lit with a certain color uh, and so it, it gives you a lot of opportunities to look at uh, the way in which object source lighting can hit something uh, to give you an idea of uh, better ways of highlighting it to make it look natural. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, it, you know, you got to think about your object, you got to think about your source, and you got to think about your lighting. Um, um, the, the other thing I would say about OSL that I think an important little bit, this helped me a lot. I didn't get to do this with my Red Skull because I learned this later on, but I've found that creating a little bit of an intensity in whatever it is that's doing the glowing is is important. And so what I like to do is one of my favorite tools now with painting is you get an artist 
an artist version of a white. And what I mean by that is like they have brands like Primacryl, for instance, and I'm sure there's other ones that have like a pure white. And Primacryl is called titanium white. And it's white, 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 white. It's like the purest white you can find kind of thing. And you normally don't use that stuff when painting. As we mentioned earlier, uh, when you're painting white, you actually want to use very little white. However, having a bright, pure white like that is really useful for adding little tiny dots of specular highlights to either make something kind of pop, or in the case of OSL, you can use it at the very base of whatever it is that's glowing, and you can use just a touch of it, and it will it will give you the impression or or better yet you could even use some of this on whatever the whether it's a flame or in red skull's case the cube you can use some of this white on there and then use blue glazes over it in the cubes case or you know yellows or oranges for a flame depending on what you're painting uh and it makes that color look much much more vibrant which really helps sell the effect that it's casting a bunch of light yeah, absolutely. And one thing I failed to mention there is um, the the thing casting the light should be the brightest part of that local area. So despite you wanting to make the the stuff the light is going onto brighter, the thing casting the light should still be the brightest. Right. And the, you know, I, I use a Liquitex Titanium White Artist. Um, you want you want to get the heavy body version because it, it's a very nice opaque version. That stuff's really great. Uh, so that is uh, kind of what I had to say about OSL. Anything else you wanted to throw out there? Um, I I, I would say glazes help a lot. Uh, I rely on that a lot when I'm using, and it, depending on what it is, if you don't have color conflicting stuff going on, like you do with Red Skull with the the blue and the red, glazes work pretty well. That's what I did for Strucker, and that worked out really well. And that's just because you've got know a yellow reddish flame casting light on on flesh and on uh on gold and a little bit of green it it doesn't contrast nearly as much and so you can get away with glazes there and it it looks much better so i, I rely on that a lot when i'm doing osl so i would recommend that to people for the most part um but yeah i think i think that about covers kind of all the insights i can think of at the moment for how you know just some advice on how to tackle the, the topic of OSL. Cool. Well, uh, so we'll, we'll stop there then, um, and we will uh, transition now to our listener questions. We had one from, from our Discord. Again, if um, we're, we're, we're talking about painting, is obviously a very uh, hard thing to do. It's not very visual. So a lot of the goal here is to give the listeners something to to think about, play around with, and then come to the Discord and ask questions with. Um, so we have a listeners channel, um, listener questions channel in the Discord. The link to that Discord will be in the show notes to this. Uh, but one of the questions we got was, and let me pull up what it actually was so I don't misremember it, is, is there a formula to make Crobatic black? Um, you know, he wanted to make uh, a Black Widow using a more purple tone, and he wanted the shadows to be a chroma black. So, chromatic black, and I'll I'll just kind of maybe start generally from how I think about chromatic black, and then you know answer the question of a purple chromatic black. 
Um, and again, it ties back to our conversation with black. Nothing in nature is really truly black. So a way to get really interesting shadows um, either on black or in actual, you know, painted miniatures. I do this a lot for my shadow towns. If you mix two colors that are, you know, roughly on opposite sides of the color wheel together, they both desaturate each other and they will mix down the, the value spectrum into a gray that's like a, a coloring gray. And then you mix in a little bit of black or paint gray to actually push it more towards the value that you want. But the real trick to getting a nice chromatic black is mixing two things that are roughly on opposite sides of the color spectrum. You know, everyone knows you mix blue and uh, blue and yellow together, you get green. You mix red and blue together, you get purple. But, you know, the trick here again is if you mix red and green together, uh, well, you get a chromatic black out of that. Um, I posted a picture here and I'll be in the show notes. Um, I do this a lot with mixing greens. Um, I, I think it's a really nice way to get a natural looking shadow. So if you mix a dark green and a, uh, well, it depends on what color you're going for. So I'm, if I'm trying to paint the thing green, I'll start with a mid-tone green and mix in a dark red. That red will usually have black mixed in from the manufacturer. Um, depending on how gray that looks, I'll mix in a little bit of black. That's usually what I'll use for my shadow color. The benefit of doing this is that it's a much more natural looking shadow color than is if you just mixed like um you just mixed a like black into your midtone. The the black into the midtone will usually give you a more saturated look, but there's nothing wrong with that. Um it's just two different looks. The the chromatic black base tones will give you more natural looking shadows, you know, getting the the darker hues will give you a more saturated look. Uh, so that that's a broad overview for like how I think about chromatic black. There's a lot to explore there, and it, it's something that I'm not um, like fully fully experienced with. It, you know, there's obviously a lot to go into with anything in the hobby. Um, to mix an interesting purple, uh, you know, uh, just red and blue. Um, you you probably want blue and red are pretty tricky because there's such wide wedges on the color wheel so i think the listener kind of had the right idea where maybe you want to go with a greenish blue and then an orangish red to mash that down into chromatic black but you just want to be careful that you know whatever kind of tone the blue is you're going for um it matches the the tonality of the red so you know if it's more yellowish blue, you want to mix in an orange. If it's more reddish blue, then maybe you want to mix in uh then maybe you want to mix in a little bit of green. I'll have a color wheel in front of me. So it, you know, it goes back to the idea of you gotta play around with your palette a little bit to figure it out. But um I mean I, I think it's not much more simple than mixing an orangish red and then a like a deep blue. Um mixing a little bit of black to desaturate it. But yeah, it's it's a really interesting concept to play around with. Yeah, this this was new to me when he had asked this question. I I assumed that it was just a you know trying to figure out how to paint black, and so I was kind of going into oh you don't want to start with black, you want to you know kind of what we talked about earlier when we were talking about the challenge of painting black. I didn't I had never even heard of this idea of chroma black and using opposite ends of the color spectrum. This this is all brand new to me. So this is something I'm going to have to start playing with definitely because. I think one of the areas for growth of me as a painter is uh, my ignorance on, you know, color theory and, and how that operates. And so this is kind of a, a good segue into um, where I'm currently at on, on my kind of hobby journey is, is learning that part of it. 
Yeah, and, and it definitely comes up a lot um, when you think about, like, uh, I, I think about color interest a lot. So, like, this stuff is of interest to me. Um, and, and it comes in a lot when you're thinking about cold versus warm tones. Like, depending on how much of each side of that color wheel you use, you know, things on the opposite ends of the color wheel are typically going to be one is going to be warm, one is going to be cool. When you mash them together, depending on the exact mixture of those, you can get a warm chromatic black or a cold chromatic black. So it it kind of gives you um, ways to play around with how warm or cold your shadow tones are. Um, I, I would say uh, the person who kind of turned me onto this and a phenomenal YouTuber, um, Marco Frisoni, he has a YouTube channel, uh, oh, okay. Not Just Mecca. Yeah, he, he talks about this stuff a lot and has kind of planted the seeds in my mind of you hear a little bit about it and then you start incorporating that, experimenting with it, learning about it. So, yeah, it's just something to another rabbit hole in painting to dive into. Huh. Well, so if uh, I think we're going to wrap it up then. Anything you want to say before I, I do the, the closing segment here? I don't think so. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening, and and thank you, uh, Moriartis, for for talking about Red Skull and Captain America. Hopefully, that gave everyone a, a little bit of insight into different recipes, different things to consider, um, potentially, you know, concepts to think about, tinker around with, come back, play around with, and and improve with. Um, it, it's all about uh, pushing and pulling, just like painting, just like learning. Uh, just like everything, um, I we got scolded by our, our listeners for not for not <laughs> talking about our social media. So um, we're going to shamelessly plug ourselves here. Um, if you want to follow my work, I'm, I'm waxy underscore sandwich on um, Instagram. I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes. Um, I, I just post my MCP stuff there. Um, honestly, if if you join any of the Marvel discords, um, I, I don't post anything you know super unique to my Instagram. Uh, but you know, if if you want to see a gallery of my work, waxy underscore sandwich, um, that is that is mainly where I am, and then waxy sandwich and all of the MCP discords. Uh, where people get, where can people find you? A uh, number of places. Uh, discords. Uh, a lot of the Marvel discords. I'm on all of those, and I just go by Moriartis. Uh, easy way to think of it. It's like Moriarty, but with an IS on the end instead of a Y. Uh, and then I have an Instagram, and that's Moriartis7. Uh, so I post all my stuff as soon as it's done on Instagram. Uh, you'll usually see it there first. Uh, I do also have a blog that I run, uh, which is moriartisminis.wordpress.com. Uh, it's a WordPress site. Uh, and I will post up blogs where I kind of go through what I've learned and how I feel about the paint job. I'll, I'll tear my stuff apart a lot. So if you want to see a lot of criticisms I have of what I've done, you can read up on it there. Uh, and I also now have a spot up there where I post uh, anytime we get a new episode published. So you guys will see this up there at some point. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that's it for me in terms of where to find me. All right, excellent. Well, well, just a reminder to the listeners, we do have a Discord. Um, you know, it's just to chat about painting, ask any listener questions, um, show off your minis, and then we have a channel in there looking for CNC. Um, I, we try to give pretty detailed um, detailed advice around what you're asking. So if, if you know, you're trying some of these concepts we talked about today, you want to maybe ask questions about them, the Discord's a great avenue for that. Um, there will be a gallery in the show notes to some of the pictures we've talked about today um, to kind of get a feel for 
what we've been saying. Um, I think that that's it. So uh, I don't have a sign off even still, but uh, <laughs> appreciate your time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>